3: In the last episode, we brought Donna Tart into sharp focus. Only she wouldn't quite let us. Insisted on staying grainy, flatly illumined, half in and half out of the frame. That's about to change. I'm Lily Analek, and this is Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. We're still in the fall of 1982, the first semester of Donna's first year at Bennington. Yet time is doing what time always does. Moving forward. Thanksgiving is almost here. Donna has started seeing Paul McGloin. The senior so besotted with her at the end of episode 5. The one studying ancient Greek.
4: I don't even know how they met. But the next thing I knew they were together. And um,
3: Meet and Student X. Good. Student X is class of 82 and, and a close friend of Paul's but more particularly of Paul's girlfriend, Margaret. Yes, Paul has a girlfriend, a serious one. Student X on Paul and Margaret.
4: And they were together for, uh, it had to be at least three years because I have a picture of us taken on the day that John Lennon was killed, which was in 1980, and they had already been together for a while then. They were a very established couple, just super, super close and loving and, They were very sweet with each other and very supportive.
3: In June of 82, Margaret graduated from Bennington, moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Paul still has another year to go. Again, student X.
4: They had, um, you know, at least her understanding, talked about either getting married or living together, or, you know, they were definitely talking about their future together. So the idea was that he was going to go to Harvard Law you know he's going to come up to cambridge and she felt very comfortable about it so the summer of 82 happens fall comes and she is going up every weekend to see him but sometime during that fall we got together and she said you know i'm really weirded out i don't know what's going on the last time i went up there he was acting really weird you know he called me and said oh you know maybe next weekend isn't good like he was very evasive and strange and she was really upset and she just didn't know what to do. So she was asking around of people who were still there. We still had a lot of friends who were there. And some of them said, well, you know, hate to tell you this, he seems to be spending a lot of time with this new girl from the South. And I <laughs> I was just thinking about this the last night. I believe that we started referring to her as the Mississippi Chippy.
3: The Mississippi Chippy. Now that's a nickname. It's Thanksgiving. And as soon as there's a break at Bennington, the utopian dream dissolves. If dorms are the great leveler, vacations are the great divider. And that students are not on equal footing becomes all too apparent once they step off campus. Jonathan Lethem.
0: On Thanksgiving break, people started telling you where they were going to go, and they were all place names I'd never heard of before. Uh, Mustique and Steamboat.
3: Jonathan is headed home to Brooklyn, Less gaudy than Moustique or Steamboat, certainly, but also fun because he's bringing with him Caitlin McCaffrey and Donna Tart, two out of three of his best Bennington buds. And Reggie Shepard, the last member of the friend Quadrangle, will be nearby in the Bronx.
0: Caitlin and Donna spent Thanksgiving freshman year with my family in Brooklyn. Caitlin didn't need it. She could have been flown back to San Francisco. Donna, I think it was a... Honestly, a little bit of a charitable act.
3: What, I wonder, does Jonathan mean by charitable act? Charitable in the economic sense, because Donna can't afford to fly home for both Thanksgiving and Christmas? Or charitable in the emotional sense, because Donna seems lonely or bereft? But I cut Jonathan off just now. I'll let him continue.
0: But also, we were kind of inseparable for that bit of time. And I was... I wanted to show her where I was from.
3: This, to me, is conclusive proof of closeness. When you want to show a person your childhood bedroom, and that person actually wants to see it. So, the friendship between Jonathan and Donna is genuine, as he acknowledges in Zelig of Notoriety, his nonfiction piece about going to college with Donna and Brett.
0: I was briefly true friends with Donna.
3: You caught the word briefly there, didn't you? So, we know the friendship is doomed. But not now, not yet. When Donna shakes off her tryptophan hangover, returns to campus, she goes on an arranged drinks date. Yes, the one with Brett Easton Ellis, the one I short shrifted back in episode four. This date is an it a fix of mine. And whenever I'm with Brett and he lets me steer the conversation, I maneuver it swiftly and directly to this topic. I just have so many questions. Did you also consider grabbing dinner in a movie? Who paid? Did you kiss at the end? His answers, in case you're curious No, just drinks. I think I paid. And uh, yeah, no, we did not kiss. Brett.
2: My roommate, Miles, was friends with her roommate. Both disliked us, so that we were uptight enough to hang out with each other.
3: That Brett is willing to be fixed up with Donna means that Brett isn't yet fully committed to being gay. That Donna is willing to be fixed up with Brett means that Donna isn't yet fully committed to Paul. But Donna has been seduced, thoroughly ravished even. If not by Paul, then by Paul's teacher, Claude Fredericks. Claude, in his late 50s and gay, the transparent and unmistakable basis for The Secret History's Julian Morrow, didn't accomplish the seduction of Donna with sex, obviously. No. He did it by offering her what she truly desires—knowledge and privilege. Here's why I'm convinced he got her. Because Brett and Donna, before meeting for that drink, agreed to exchange pages. Brett gives Donna a couple of the nonfiction stories that he'll fictionalize in Lesson Zero. This is what Donna gives Brett.
2: 20 pages or so, and not necessarily what would become The Secret History. But it was something about, like, a teacher and some students, and I'm not even sure there was a murder, but there was something about this milieu.
3: If Brett's memory is to be relied upon, and I'm not saying it is, memory being more akin to quicksand than solid ground, then Claude has already colonized Donna's imagination. As have Claude's students, Todd O'Neill, the basis for The Secret History's Henry Winter, and Matt Jacobson, the basis for The Secret History's Bunny Corcoran, along with Paul McGloin. The urge to tell this story, the story of a small band of undergraduates, a brilliant yet warped elite, under the sway of a charismatic and amoral classicist, is there no matter that she hasn't figured out what exactly the story is. Now, Donna and Brett do not fall in love that night. They do, however, fall in friendship. You wouldn't know it from Brett, whose talk about Donna... Who's talk about almost everyone, himself included, is hard, casual, brutal. That's his style, and, I'd argue, his code. We'll learn in a later episode, though, that he's actually quite tender towards her, protective as well. Jonathan will also have a run-in with Brett at around this time. Before getting to that, though, I want to talk about who Jonathan is at Bennington. Fundamentally, Jonathan is someone who feels like an outsider, a poor boy at a school for rich kids, but who looks like an insider.
5: I insinuated myself into a lot of things really fast. And I think that in retrospect, I look at myself and of course I cringe for any number of reasons. I cringe all the way to my soul. But what's poignant to me is I was responding, poignant, but also, you know, kind of admirable in a way, in an embarrassing way, that I responded to the, potential humiliations of not belonging there by playing at belonging totally in any zone that I wandered into and I actually um I haven't thought about this for a long time but I I ran for student council and got on
3: what Jonathan also feels like a fraud here he is again
0: I was with um Vincent and Lisa and Sean White and Uh, Who knows who else was in the room that day? And we were just listening to Psychedelic Furs records or doing whatever. And someone brought a spray can. And then I grabbed the spray can and I tagged. Lisa and Vincent, their eyes got really big. And they were like, that's a real tag. Are you like a graffiti kid? I remember this incredible sense of like what it was to unveil my secrets in this place. You know, and this is an old theme, right? Like in the Halls of Privilege, the pet, you know, it's like being Jean Genet or something and telling a story about working on a boat when you're in some Parisian literary salon. But at the same time, it was very self loathing and very intricate and very uncomfortable because I knew that my tag did not pass muster. You know, in Vermont, in the dorm room, my spray paint work looked like a New York City subway train. But when I was with, you know, I'm not going to call them my homeboys, when I was with my friends and everybody was doing their tag and they would hand me the spray can, I was the one they would like laugh at. And they'd be like, yo, don't even try. So I was a double counterfeit at that moment
3: and he feels like a fraud in more ways than one. After all, Jonathan's a writing student, passing himself off as an art student.
0: I didn't stop taking art classes because I wanted to be a little bit still the prodigy and the star. I needed to be, I had an inferiority complex about the money and the access and the resources and the privileges. So I needed to be impressive and and have little domains. It's also why I carved out the like film nerd You know, King of Tishman thing. My core identity was as a writer. Probably I was intimidated by Brett and buried it around him. I was running back to my room to write.
3: King of Tishman. Let me decode that for you. So in addition to serving on the student council, Jonathan is also running Bennington's Film Society, which operates out of Tishman Hall. He'll get booted off the student council for failing classes, but he'll hang on to Film Society and tenaciously. And then Brett, a rich kid, not just a true insider, but a true writer as well, recognized as such by the world beyond Bennington. Remember, Brett spent his Thanksgiving break meeting with Simon & Schuster editor Morgan Entrykin, comes along and exposes Jonathan's reign as illegitimate. Brett and Jonathan are, that freshman fall, alert to one another, though they're not quite friends, more wary acquaintances. Brett,
2: I got to know Jonathan
3: because my friend has a crush on him. The friend with the crush on Jonathan is Larry David. No, not that Larry David. Other Larry David. Bennington Larry David. And one day during breakfast, Brett and Jonathan strike up a conversation about a subject of mutual interest.
2: I can remember so clearly this moment where we were talking—the first time we met, we were talking about movies. He was talking about like one or two Robert Altman movies, and I knew all of them. Ones that he hadn't even heard of. In 1979, he'd made four films and Jonathan hadn't heard of any of them and was very confused. And I will never forget the look on his face because he was very kind of, you know, uh, breezily confident about his Robert Altman knowledge
5: in 1982. Jonathan. It was really like an adult talking to a child (laughs) sometimes. I mean, I just I was sort of like, oh, Robert Altman's cool. And what I meant was that, you know, I'd seen Nashville. I was bluffing. He knew things in a different level. It was like a good, he gave me a good pocket guide to to 70s Altman.
3: Jonathan keeps it light and hip now, sees the humor in hindsight. But it's got to have been a devastating encounter for him at the time. He's already feeling insecure. Brett, of course, is also beset by self-doubt often to a morbid and incapacitating degree. Yet the surface he presents to the world is without visible crack and buffed to a high gloss. Any panic in his eyes, he edits out with wayfarers. What's more, Brett's self-doubt is of a different order than Jonathan's. It's self-doubt coupled with self-knowledge. Meaning, Brett has taken the fear and trembling that is inevitable, that is part of the process of becoming and that never goes away, not completely, and embraced it, turned it into a kind of self-mastery, which is why he seems, at 18, fully realized. Not just precocious, but like someone who didn't bother with childhood or adolescence. Certainly didn't bother with being normal or ordinary. Jonathan will have a chance to lick his wounds because NRT, non-resident term, Bennington's extended winter break, is upon them. Jonathan on NRT.
0: The origin of the non-resident term <laughs> was to not have to heat the dorms but there was some strange quality of exposure to it because some people went and became uh Andy Warhol's assistant or started a hedge fund or you know got arrested in an exotic country smuggling drugs others of us had to like say beg some used bookstore in Brooklyn to let you come back and <laughs> shelved books for uh, six weeks. I mean, that was actually a very meaningful time for me. I lived in New York for the NRT weeks, and that was where I began writing my first novel.
3: 1982 to 1983 NRT, we know will prove definitive for Brett. It's when he'll write Less Zero, which he's been writing over, under, towards, and around for the past two or so years, ever since he was a junior at the Buckley School in Sherman Oaks but it's equally, if less overtly, essential for Jonathan and Donna. Jonathan is going to begin his writing career in earnest. As he just said, he'll start his first novel, Apes in the Plan. And Donna will fully enter the world of her first novel, The Secret History.
1: I'm Shimol
3: Warning, listeners. The next part of this episode is going to unfold like a chapter in an epistolary novel. You know, one of those novels that's composed entirely of letters, the kind that was so big in the 18th and 19th centuries. The letters, in this case, are written by Donna, to Jonathan, over NRT. It's a one-sided correspondence as far as we're concerned, since Jonathan kept Donna's letters, but not carbon copies of his own. Two things before I get into these letters. First thing, I will, for pacing reasons, be quoting the letters sparingly. A lot of what's contained in them would be intensely interesting to Donna and Jonathan in the early 1980s, though not to us in 2021. Second thing, the letters aren't typed. They're written by hand. And I can think of little so naked, so full of pathos, as handwriting. Reading them, I feel as if I'm at last meeting Donna, who, as you know, declined to participate in this podcast. And not just meeting Donna— meeting the real Donna, Donna Lou, what she often calls herself in these letters, Louise being her middle name. They are authentically, abashingly intimate. Letter number one. Donna sends it to Jonathan from her hometown of Grenada, Mississippi. It's dated December 22nd, 1982, and is written on a card. On the front, Donna has drawn a nifty little six-paneled comic about Bonda a which is, you'll remember, the popular campus band started by Lisa Fader and Bricks Smith, with whom Donna fleetingly shared a boyfriend, Mark Norris. The comic is better seen than described, so I'll just give you the gist. Donna is making fun of Banda and its pretensions. Maybe she was more pissed at Bricks for moving in on Mark Norris than she let on, but really making fun of herself and her own pretensions. Bricks and Lisa are punks, a kind of pose. Donna, though, likes to act as if the modern world doesn't exist, or that if it does exist, she isn't part of it. Another kind of pose. Listeners, I'm going to share with you the contents of this letter, but first I'd like to read, or have Donna read, a relevant excerpt from The Secret History. Because Hampton was so far
8: north, and because the buildings were old and expensive to heat, the school was closed during January and February.
3: So, Hampton College has NRT, too. From the first moment I set foot in Hampton,
8: I had begun to dread the end of term, when I would have to go back to Plano, and flat land, and filling stations, and dust. As the term wore on, and the snow got deeper, and the mornings blacker, and every day brought me closer to the date on the smeared mimeograph, December 17th, all final papers due, taped inside my closet door my melancholy began to turn into something like alarm. I did not think I could stand a Christmas at my parents' house with a plastic tree and the TV going constantly.
3: Look, I'm not an utter rube here. I don't believe that the secret history is straight-up Romana Clay or that Richard Papin is Donna Tartan Drag. That said, I don't believe Richard's feelings of dread and loathing about returning home for winter break are totally beside the point, either which is why having Donna deliver these passages is so valuable and telling. Okay, onto the letter itself. Now, Donna's letters are ultra-mannered. So mannered they might be modeled on the letters of certain well-known writers and artists of the fin de siècle decadent set, Oscar Wilde, say, or Aubrey Beardsley, who, according to rumor, was both actively homosexual and father to the baby miscarried by his sister, a cross-dressing stage actress. The attitude is waspish, arch, magisterial, and scrupulously blasé. And yet, Donna's letters are also chatty. Letter number one certainly is. The steward stewardess cut her off after four Bloody Marys on the flight home. The only job she's been able to scare up is teaching the, quote, little Philistines at her alma mater, a Christian school called Kirk Academy, poetry. She's without wheels because her father sold her car while she was at Bennington. Here, she makes a joking allusion to the Beach Boys lyric, and she'll have fun, fun, fun till her daddy takes the T-Bird away. And she's reduced to getting her kicks by visiting the local religious bookstore and asking the clerk for a copy of Bertrand Russell's Why I Am Not a Christian. Donna's tone is droll in the extreme. Still, you can hear the panic underneath the drollery. She demands that Jonathan send her a letter or else she writes, quote, I shall resort to heavy drugs to ease the pain. The resort-to-heavy-drugs bit is a gag, of course, but the fact that she includes her address, which is already on the envelope, betrays her. She's not kidding. She very much wants Jonathan to write. The separation from Bennington and Bennington Friends is clearly going to be a hardship for her. In the last episode, Paula Powers remembered a lunch she had with Jonathan and Donna early on in the fall term. She described what Donna looked like, preppy with medium-length hair, what Donna wore, a button-down in chinos, but not what Donna talked about. Here's what Donna talked about. Kirk Academy, or rather a particular class at Kirk Academy. Paula recounts, She
7: had to go to home economics class, even though she didn't want to. And one time they started the class, the teacher said they were going to go around the room and every girl was going to say how many children she wanted to have. So they went all around the room and finally it was Donna's turn and Donna just sat there for a moment and then she said, well, I don't really want to have a baby. And there was this dead silence for like 10 seconds. And then the teacher looked at her and said, now Donna, every woman wants to have a baby.
3: (laughs) This story, casually revealing as it is of background and circumstances, will prove uncharacteristic of Donna who is close-mouthed about where she's from, at least in Paula's experience. Though Paula adds this.
7: I don't recall her really ever talking about the South, except for like it was kind of backwards and that she couldn't be the person she was at Bennington if she had stayed there.
3: And now she's back there, back in the South, back in Grenada, back at Kirk Academy too, where home ec is a requirement and baby-making might as well be. How's she going to get through the next nine weeks? Now, letter number two. Letter number two is also sent by Donna, from Grenada, and is dated January 11, 1983. In the opening paragraph, Donna details a recent trip to Kirk Academy to teach a creative writing class. She costumed herself for the occasion, she tells Jonathan, in her, quote, Arthur Rimbaud suit. Let's take a beat here an Arthur Rimbaud suit. Arthur Rimbaud is in the 19th century French poet and decadent, the beautiful boy genius, a veritable god of puberty, as André Breton described him, who at 16 stole fellow poet and decadent Paul Verlaine from wife and unborn child. So suffice to say, Donna's style has changed. No more preppy handbook approved duds for her. She's now wearing suits, which means she's now dressing like the classics boys. One of the classics boys, Todd O'Neill, picks up on the homage.
0: In the beginning, I think she dressed a little differently. She looked like a, you know, 1980s college student and kind of preppy. It was a little surreal because, you know, all of a sudden Donna became like a small version of Paul. I can remember very clearly sitting with Paul and Donna and, you know, Donna was there dressed very similar to Paul a blue blazer and a club tie and a, a white shirt and khakis or whatever boys pants not girls hair and this funky little asexual bob and uh, it was as if we were three boys sitting there
3: Donna finds the experience of teaching at Kirk Academy an ungratifying one it isn't until she's finished extolling the virtues of the Raymond Chandler novel she'd borrowed from Jonathan that the letter gets really interesting she writes quote love life haven't heard from Lord Jim, end quote. Paul, on the other hand, is, she reports, calling daily, besieging her with letters and flowers. So, evidently, Paul is not the only iron in Donna's fire, nor is he the hottest. Lord Jim, whoever he is, takes that honor. Lord Jim, a character in a Joseph Conrad novel, is obviously a sobriquet. We'll be hearing more about him later, don't worry. What makes this revelation extra shocking? we know that Donna and Paul are beyond the initial phase of courtship. In the letters PS, Donna complains that Jonathan's film society duties kept them from seeing much of each other, then adds, quote, but I suppose that was due to the man as well. The man being her pet name for Paul. Plus, we know that Paul has already discarded, slash is in the process of discarding, Margaret for Donna. What we don't know, or rather listeners, what you don't know, that Margaret isn't called Margaret. She's called Bunny. Yes, you heard me right. Bunny. So Donna ends up sticking the character based on Matt Jacobson with the nickname of Paul McGloin's ex-girlfriend, the one she aced out. Before I have Matt tell you about Bunny, though, I should probably mention that Paul turned down my request for an interview. Here's Matt on the first Bunny, the OG Bunny, Paul's Bunny.
4: Cranberry heiress, yeah, you might want to say that, yeah. I think the ocean spray somewhere along the line. She was very, uh, you know, come as you may, and loved a good laugh, and uh, was able to make him chuckle. And I think they were supposed to have a long term love affair, but then uh, other plans kicked in.
3: Donna, of course, being the other plans, on page three in a paragraph headlined "Random Facts to Ponder," she drops this random fact that she's decided to ditch Grenada and Kirk Academy in favor of Washington, DC. Even though she has no job, not so much as a sniff of one. In parentheses, she adds, quote, "'I will be staying with Paul.'" Donna is telling Jonathan that she is, in effect, moving in with Paul, yet she doesn't present it as some grandly impetuous romantic gesture, more as a way to get out of the house, like anywhere but Grenada, anywhere but with my family. That she conveys this piece of information big news by almost any standard, in the middle of a paragraph via a throwaway parenthetical, says it all, I think. The letter runs on for several more pages. Nothing of real interest is communicated, though, until she comes to the end, when she asks Jonathan for updates on his romantic life. Because, quote, yours seems to be hotting up a bit, unlike my own. Unlike her own. Poor Paul. And for a closer... Underneath her signature is a blank space on the page, with an arrow pointing to the blank space and instructions. She tells Jonathan to kiss the spot, as she already did. Okay, letter number three. Letter number three is sent by Donna from Washington, D.C., and is dated January 24, 1983. I'm skipping the greetings, not shelling the newsy small talk. She and Paul are renting an apartment in a townhouse near Capitol Hill. She's enjoying not having to work. And I'm going right to the key bits. The first key bit, that she and the man, that is Paul, are getting along swimmingly. In fact, she likens the two of them to a couple married for years and years. But then she notes that the, quote, burning boy element is still part of their dynamic, adding that Paul continues to address her as, quote, laddie and my boy, my boy. The second key bit, an event she describes as, quote, the raciest thing. Paul and Donna, who is dressed in pants and a loose sweater, in other words, in clothes that do not give away her gender, visit the National Gallery, wander into one of the rooms where they overhear a guard say under his breath, more faggots. Writes Donna, quote, it pleased Paul no end. All right, let's break down these two bits. Paul and Donna, a boy and a girl, are in a romantic and sexual relationship. Very traditional, entirely socially acceptable. Yet somehow, not. The fantasy, mutual, or so it would seem from Donna's telling, is that they are two boys in a romantic and sexual relationship. Or rather, a man and a boy in a romantic and sexual relationship. After all, Paul's the man and Donna is my boy, In any case, they're erotic outlaws, scourges of polite society. Why else would Paul be, quote, pleased? Donna, too, you can hear the pleasure in her telling, I think, by the slur directed at them by the bigoted museum guard. So Paul and Donna are a straight couple that, perhaps, gets a little jolt out of masquerading as a gay couple. So what? So nothing, except that it points to a larger pattern or theme. Donna appears to be inhabiting a world where aesthetic preference is given to homosexuality. I should specify, to male homosexuality. Surely some of this is due to Brideshead Revisited, in which the central love affair is between two young men, Oxonians Charles Ryder and Sebastian Flight. And much of Bennington is, as we discussed at length in the last episode, under Brideshead's spell. Nancy Morowitz, Class of 86.
6: There's a wonderful scene in the novel that's done really beautifully in the miniseries where the Lord Marchmain's mistress is talking about understanding the relationship between Charles and Sebastian, that it's a very Anglo-Saxon thing to have two young men having a sort of romantic friendship, and that many men, if I'm remembering it correctly, it's a passage to something else, it's a passage to adulthood. It's a very good scene, and I think that has some resonance for the sexual experimentation of that time at Bennington. I mean, as young women, we all sort of joked a little bitterly about the fact that there were so many guys who were interested in other guys or were sort of confused. That was the term everyone used, confused. And it was kind of disappointing that you develop, you know, tremendous crush on this adorable, cultured boy, and then it would turn out that he
3: wasn't really interested in you. <laughs> the connection between Claude Fredericks and Brideshead isn't obvious. For example, I can't imagine that Brideshead is a novel that Claude paid much attention to. And I really can't imagine that he was tuning in to the TV series. Yet it's there. Matt Jacobson makes it instantly, almost unconsciously. He begins talking to me about the show, referencing an impromptu picnic Charles and Sebastian go on, and then jumping, without warning, to Claude.
4: There's that scene where he sits down under the tree and has wine and strawberries, and, uh, I mean, yeah, thoughts go back to Claude and the love that dare not speak its name.
3: In fact, it's Claude's love that dare not speak its name proclivities that got Matt, an indifferent student by his own account, into the highly selective Greek class in the first place. Matt thinks back on his initial encounter with Claude.
4: We had a nice time talking, but, I mean, if I was missing a leg, I wouldn't have been studying Greek. I I, I know. Being one of Claude's boys
3: meant filling certain boxes. Checking. Checking boxes. I mean, he, I think he thought I was a pretty boy. And, of course, there's the classics themselves. Donna reads from The Secret History.
8: You want to know what classics are? said a drunk dean of admissions to me at a faculty party a couple of years ago. I'll tell you what classics are. Wars and homos. A sententious and vulgar statement, certainly, but like many such
3: gnomic vulgarities, it also contains a tiny splinter of truth. This isn't to say that everyone in the classics group is homosexual. Matt, Todd, and Paul are all in relationships with young women, But Claude is homosexual, as you're already well aware, listeners. His liaison with the poet James Merrill was mentioned in the previous episode. Claude, however, also has liaisons with students. Paula Powers.
7: I didn't really know Claude, just that he was a a classics teacher. I knew he was having an affair with a student who, who I knew who was in one of my literature classes.
3: This student is still alive and is married to a woman with college-age children. So I'm not going to use his real name. I'll call him Tazio, the name of the beautiful youth in Thomas Mann's Death in Venice. Nancy Morowitz on Tazio. Very handsome in a boyish,
6: almost poetic way. Had dark hair and sort of pale skin and pink cheeks, and he had a kind of slender fleshiness. It was not a stretch to think of him as a young man that like the poet Kavafi would have written about admiringly. He was very bright, very unusual intelligence, um, with a kind of sweetness and a softness about him. And um, everyone talked about him as someone who was having a relationship with Claude.
3: If Nancy's classmates are aghast at what's going on between Claude and Tazio, they disguise it well. I don't think people talked about it
6: in a disapproving way at all. I mean, it might have been a shock just simply because, for some of us, because our backgrounds were more sheltered or, I mean, that was certainly the case for me.
3: But it was pervasive. It was part of the DNA of Bennington. This is not exaggeration on Nancy's part. It's simple statement of fact. The pull quote from my Esquire piece, the seed for this entire podcast, which raised the greatest number of eyebrows, came from Bennington teacher Nick DelBanco. "Quote: Back then, God help us, it was a badge of dishonor not to have slept with your professor." Famed academic and cultural critic Camille Paglia taught at Bennington before she was famed, from 1972 to 1979. Here's Morris Spiegel, a student of Camille's.
7: The very first class that I took at Pennington was with Camille Paglia, and it was called Aestheticism and Decadence. <laughs> it
4: was amazing.
7: And um, she was talking about people walking their pet crab on a velvet robe. She said, there's nothing you can do these days besides, you know, perhaps amputating an arm.
3: <laughs> According to Matt Jacobson, Camille got into a friendly competition with Claude over a student couple. Camille had eyes for the female student, Claude for the mail.
2: Here we go. She was interested in this one girl, and Claude was interested in her boyfriend. They made jokes about who would win. One day, the guy who was an amateur pilot crashed his plane, the girl became free, and then they used classy Greek terms to talk to each other, and she said, my daimon was stronger than yours.
3: Daimon, an ancient Greek word which translates roughly to godlike power, a similar story to the one Matches told appears in a profile of Camille in the LA Times in the early 90s. Quote At one point, much of the Bennington campus was spellbound by a story that had Poglia causing a male student's plane to crash because she had a crush on his girlfriend. I asked Camille, through her Knopf publicist, if the story is true. I received the following response Quote, statement by Camille Poglia. The claim that Claude Fredericks and I discussed or joked about affairs with Bennington students is totally false. My relationship with Fredericks was formal and professional and confined to departmental and committee meetings. The girlfriend of the pilot in the fatal plane crash was my student for one semester. It is categorically untrue that I had an affair with her or knew her at all, except for one or two brief conversations outside of class. Seems a little huffy and, well, I never for a woman who was allegedly asked to resign from Bennington for kicking one student in the ass, getting into a fistfight with another. But her point is taken. The story's baloney. On a personal note, I'm a Camille fan, so having her bitch slap me over email was, I'll admit, kind of a thrill. This next story, though, isn't baloney. Brett tells it about teacher-poet Stephen Sandy. Remember Stephen Sandy? Mr. Historicity does not ensure relevance. Well, Brett catches him in a less buttoned-up moment. He and I discuss.
2: The only interchange I ever had with Stephen Sandy, and I think about this a lot because of the Me Too movement, I was with a a guy, I wasn't even friends with him, a nice-looking guy, and we were at a spring, fling into spring party, which all the students and all the teachers go to, and everyone gets, would get blotto. A lot of those parties at Bennington were mixed with teachers and students because students were fucking teachers and teachers were fucking students. I mean, Ian Giller had a long, a year-long affair with a French teacher. I mean, it was just something that happened.
3: Quick correction. Ian says the affair was with a German teacher, not French, and she wasn't his teacher. Back to Brett.
2: Stephen Sandy was my assigned advisor when I first got to Bennington, but never saw him and never really had any him. I just remember that he... Came on to me and my friend and intimated that we should have a threesome. His wife was away or something. And me and my friend were just like, kind of like laughing and having another gin and tonic. And, you know, and we just kind of said, you know, my friend whispered to me, don't just get out of here. I mean, there's another party over there. I mean, I don't want to stick around here. And I said, I agree. I'm like, well, maybe we can find some drugs. And I yeah. said, yeah, let's, let's go do that.
3: Here's Nancy Morowitz on a teacher of hers whose wooing efforts met with more success. I can remember
6: walking in, it was like a Saturday or a Sunday morning, and there in the bed was my French teacher <laughs> and this young woman who was a couple of years ahead of me, you know, and I remember also being surprised that, that it was her because he was so clearly a middle-aged man and she was so clearly someone who was not really even out of adolescence. I can recall that like, she still had a little bit of acne. I very much remember thinking, I don't want to look as if I'm shocked or surprised. And it was also very prosaic. It was like a Sunday morning and he might have been, you know, in an undershirt and shorts reading newspaper in bed. You know, it was something not provocative looking. That too sort of, you know, that made it somehow um,
3: even more (laughs) disappointing. I don't know. I'm not sure of the word. All of this is to give you some context, listeners what Claude Fredericks is doing with Tazio isn't, in the context of early 80s Bennington, extraordinary. Actually, hold on a second. It is a little bit extraordinary because gay people at this time, at least gay people of Claude's age at this time, aren't, for the most part, out. Stephen Sandy is the more typical case, has a wife but is making passes at young men when that wife isn't around. Claude, contrastingly, is openly gay. And gayness is, in a sense, his subject what he's teaching. Morris Spiegel, who, to remind you, was Claude's advisee before she was his colleague, said to me, quote, My understanding was that Claude's classes were about being homosexual and how to do it with grandeur and history and beauty. I'm going to read you an entry from the 1982 to 1984 Bennington Course Catalog, written by the teachers themselves. Course title, Corydon. Instructor, Claude Fredericks. Description, Studies in some of the classical texts of homosexual love, only incidental consideration will be given to merely neurotic or glandular manifestations, but the relationship of friendship to love and of agape to eros will be one of the underlying concerns. Since it will be one of the several presumptions of the Course that love between men is a unique experience and not merely a question of pronouns, some attention will be given to how the fear of societal disapproval has produced a number of mangled and incoherent masterpieces. But to bring this back to Donna and Paul, and to get to the point, it's not difficult to understand why Donna and Paul might fetishize gay male relations and why Donna might choose to adopt, as her personal style, that of a beautiful boy rather than that of a beautiful girl and one from a different era. Fittingly enough, Donna ends letter number three with a quote from Oscar Wilde. You must have a cigarette. A cigarette is the perfect type of a perfect pleasure. It is exquisite, and it leaves one unsatisfied. What more can one want? Letter number four. Once again, Donna sends it to Jonathan from Washington, D.C. It's dated February 7th, 1983. The envelope is really kind of a knockout, so I'll describe it to you. It's Valentine's Day-themed, the address written in red ink and decorated with little hearts. On the back is a lipstick kiss, and underneath the kiss, the letters S-W-A-K. That is, sealed with a kiss. Now for the actual letter. Donna responds, presumably to a question asked by Jonathan as to whether or not she's happy with Paul. Quote, I suppose so. If one could call a bird in a gilded cage happy... But seriously, folks, this is a very nice setup being coddled and financially supported. That Paul is willing to coddle and financially support is clearly a large part of his appeal for her. And why wouldn't it be? He gets her not just out of Grenada, but out of having to take a job at Kirk Academy or any place else. Writing is a leisure class pursuit. Thanks to Paul, she is, at least for the duration of NRT, a member of the leisure class not that she's made much use of her free time. She marvels at Jonathan for having started a novel before confessing that she's been spinning her own literary wheels. A, quote, friend, Dr. Abbott at Ole Miss, has asked her to contribute to an anthology of Mississippi writers. The trouble is, she's blocked. And then she drops this odd bit of news. She and Paul, at the townhouse in which they are renting an apartment, are posing as brother and sister quite a pose, and they're striking it out of deference to the middle class morals of their landlords a married couple it's at this point in the letter that the mysterious Lord Jim reappears Donna is bemoaning the fact that the SOB hasn't written or called since September it's always she who's reaching out to him the last time being just before the start of NRT she hasn't heard so much as a peep from him since and won't until quote hell freezes over or she, quote, breaks down some drunken night and phones him. So Donna is living with Paul, but pining for this Jim person, non Bennington Shirley, or she wouldn't be communicating with him via post and telephone. Letter number five. Letter number five, the final letter, is undated, but written, as best I can determine, sometime in late February or early March. The Brother and Sister Act is at the point of crisis, she and Paul were very nearly thrown out of their apartment. Quote, the charges: incest. Fortunately, we are not brother and sister, or else we would have been quite guilty. In a headlong rush, Donna says that she and Paul were able to persuade their landlords that no acts of incest had been committed, but in so doing, reveal that acts of premarital sex had. Their landlords, full of righteous fury, ordered them out. Then Paul opened his wallet. Cash was flashed and scruples vanished. An unpleasant situation resolved. Donna needn't ever think about it again. Donna, though, I suspect does think about it. Does more than think. Draws inspiration from. Just look at the secret histories Charles and Camilla McCauley, who also share an apartment and who aren't pretending to be brother and sister. Donna reads...
8: Bunny was so drunk he could hardly sit up. But then turned to Camilla and said, How come you kids live together? She shrugged in that odd, one-shouldered way the twins had. Huh? It's convenient, said Camilla. Cheap. Well, I think it's pretty damn peculiar. Not much privacy, is there? Little place like this, on top of each other all the time. It's a two-bedroom apartment. And when you get lonesome in the middle of the night, There was a brief silence. I don't know what you're trying to say, she said icily. Sure you do, said Bunny. Convenient as hell. Kind of classical, too. Those Greeks carried on with their brothers and sisters like nobody's... Whoops, he said, retrieving the whiskey glass which was about to fall off the arm of his chair. Sure, it's against the law and stuff, he said. But what's that to you?
3: Donna's letter keeps humming along. True feelings are disclosed. I hate Jim, she writes, but does not explain why, that single sentence constituting the entire paragraph. Tawdry confessions are exchanged. She thanks Jonathan for trusting her with his sexual secrets and then tells him that he is, quote, the only person in the world who knows about the extent of the burning bee thing. Burning bee is shorthand, I assume, for burning boy, i.e. Donna playing boy for Paul, Jonathan may be Donna's sole confidant as far as the, quote, burning bee thing goes, but somehow news has got out. Has, in fact, made its way to Cambridge and to Paul's girlfriend, Bunny, who is really Paul's ex-girlfriend, Bunny, only Bunny doesn't know it yet. Student X on what she and Bunny are hearing about the Mississippi chippy.
4: People were saying these weird things about her, and she's this powerhouse, and she's so smart, and... You know, and then this other thing, I don't know why this filtered down why anyone knew this, but just that she somehow like liked to have sex like a young boy. Like I don't even know what that means.
3: Student X decides to investigate. She heads up to Bennington for a weekend visit. On that visit, she has a long talk with Paul. Student X kept a diary in 1982. Student X saved that diary. An excerpt from it. Paul totally disclaims the whole relationship. He never really loved Bunny, is in love with a, quote, delightful creature, a girl who looks like a little boy, whose sexuality seems to be that she wants to be treated like a homosexual man. End of excerpt. Also on that visit, student X meets Donna.
4: I thought, well, you know, I'm going to check this out. And I went going expecting to see some scary like Weimar era, you know, temptress of some sort, you know, photo- and I get there and I meet Donna and she's this super sweet, tiny little thing, really friendly, very eager to make like a good impression on me in the way that you would be, you know, with your boyfriend's friends. For some reason, I ended up, I don't know where Paul went, but he let me stay in his room and Donna was there, too, and she insisted that I sleep in the bed, and she slept on the floor. (laughs) I don't really, so that seemed really, that seemed very sort of like, you know, please like me, but I do have to say, you know, I went back a little bit with my tail between my legs, you know, because I think Bunny was expecting me to be like, either to say, oh, you know, it's nothing, or, oh, yeah, she's a total bitch, and she's, you know, so full of herself, but it so wasn't true.
3: So there's the persona that Donna is cultivating, her aspirational persona, an outre sex-having man-eating wunderkind. And then there's the persona that she's arrived at Bennington with, warm, ingratiating, a little insecure, very much wanting to please. And the gap between the two is, at least at this point, wide. But going back to Donna's letter to Jonathan, which ends with an unexpected proposal, Donna asks Jonathan if he wants to room with her next semester, promising to keep their space tidy, confine her smoking to the hall, and make him tea. I don't imagine that this is a serious offer. It's a further indication, though, of how close they are. Reading these letters, it's hard to believe their bond will ever break. They seem so intimate, more intimate in some ways than lovers. Yet that's exactly what happens shortly after they return to campus. Jonathan is opaque as to the reason. He is not, however, that opaque. In Zelig of Notoriety, he says this.
0: With her, as with others in that first flush, I passed through a dazzlingly quick intimacy to violent disagreement, then silence. What compels me now is that in each of these cases, the friend was another like myself, a financial aid case there, stranded amid the heirs to various American fortunes.
3: And Jonathan told me a story about his relationship with Miles Bellamy that is not, I suspect, without its relevance to his relationship with Donna. Miles, as you may recall, is Brett's freshman year roommate, the one who divided the room in half with broken glass. He's the son of Dick Bellamy, the celebrated New York art dealer who is also a friend of the Beat Poets. In fact, Dick's in a Beat movie. Pull My Daisy, a 1959 short written by Jack Kerouac. Dick plays the bishop, which Jonathan features at the Film Society. And Miles grew up same as Jonathan, rich culturally, but not economically.
0: The real time I figured out that Miles was kind of a New York street kid like me was on the basketball court. I wanted to play pickup basketball at Bennington. And of course, the only kids who played pickup basketball at Bennington were the ones who had been sporty in their boarding schools or wherever they'd been. And They were passing to each other and blocking out. And Miles was doing what I was doing, which was just stealing the ball and then trying to drive in for a layup then hoping that no one would call you for a traveling violation. He hated me on the basketball court. And I hated him because our crappy street games were both being exposed by these sort of varsity kids. And at the same time, if it was only one of us, at least it would be an original thing to be the weird one doing these like, ball-hogging street moves unsuccessfully. We would have been a novelty, but instead there was two of us. You know, our friendship almost didn't recover seeing one another on the basketball court. And this goes to something I can talk about more, which is the way the other poor kids at a place like this become enemies.
3: So is that why Jonathan and Donna finally turn away from each other? Because of money? Or rather because of how Bennington makes you ashamed for not having it? So ashamed that you can't bear to look in the face of another person who shares your lack? The pain of recognition being simply too great a burden? I wonder. Jonathan ends his Zeleg piece with a memory that may be just a dream.
0: My first work-study job, probably the only one available to a new freshman, was on the front lines of my secret class war. I served food at the dining hall to my fellow students, stuck on the wrong side of the counter with the Vermont locals those whom we elsewhere snubbed as if they were Cro-Magnons, taking up space on our Homo sapiens campus. Is it hallucination that among my fellow student workers there, those of us in paper aprons, and possibly paper hats as well, holding outsized food service ladles, dripping with gunk, at least for a shift or two, was Donna? I have no way to confirm it. The image may be a fantasy. Perhaps I only recall serving Donna food from across that counter. If it is a fantasy, it was surely induced by rereading the brilliant first pages of Donna's novel, where her narrator describes filling out his application to Hamden College, where it says, would you like to receive information on financial aid? Yes. As any crime writer knows, if you want to hide a clue, bury it at the start of a book.
3: Zoig is part of Jonathan's essay collection, The Ecstasy of Influence, which is published in 2011. Brett loves the piece and tells Jonathan so.
2: I wrote him an email saying, this is one of the best things anyone's ever written about I me. Mean, I think he was going to be afraid that I would be offended, like Donna was.
3: Offended like Donna was. And Brett isn't the only one who told me Donna was offended by Zoig. Yet Jonathan's rendering of Donna in it is inoffensive, is in fact affectionate and admiring. So why offended? Is it because she's so intensely private that she can't abide to have anything of a personal nature revealed? Or is it because of what he revealed in particular, namely that she was on, or might've been on, financial aid? If the latter, then it's a clue indeed. So let's examine it, shall we? Let's go back to the beginning. Back to Donna's beginnings. Next time on Once Upon a Time at Bennington College, Donna Tart's origin story.
2: When Donna hit Ole Miss, she was a shy student who didn't date much. I don't think that she had sex with anybody. We both had the same personality and uh, both had tempers. Hers was expressed more and she was huge in making me jealous and there was a certain guy and she granted me later that indeed it was so easy for her to as she said tantalize me with this guy's
3: name This has been a presentation and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Once Upon a Time at Bennington College is executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran created and written by me directed by Zach Levitt edited by Perry Kroll script edited by Bruce Handy Production support and additional editing by Ian Mont, Mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz. Production coordination by Terrence Malingone. Studio coordination by Sean Cherry. Artwork and design by Kurt Courtney. Marketing by Brian Swarth, Josephina Francis, Moira Curran, and Melissa Wester. The original music is by Joel Goodman. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company.